Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Unfortunately, Larry Collins has passed away. Him and his sister Lori, who passed away in 2019, were the Collins kids. When they were, I think, 10 and 12 in the 1950s, they started to appear on this California television show called Town Hall Party. And there's lots of clips on it on YouTube. We refer to some of them in in the interview, and I recommend watching them. They're really incredible time capsule into uh, what was happening. Just television production and music and country music in California and America, the world. Uh, They're just a great window into the past. So uh, an interesting interview. This is a live interview with the two of them. And I... just listening back to it makes me wish I had another opportunity to chat with them because there's just so much more uh, we could have talked about with the two of them and and their long careers and comebacks, etc. And Larry co-wrote the song Delta Dawn that was uh, number one for Helen Reddy in 73. It was a country hit for Tanya Tucker. Bette Midler, though, was the first person to record it. I didn't know that. Uh, and then after the Collins Kids, we're going to hear from William Bell. He's still around, Memphis songwriter, Stax performing artist. Uh, the only reason we're hearing this was because I spoke to him on the same show as the Collins Kids, so... Why not? Let's air this one, too. Pay tribute to the great William Bell. Uh, So we're starting off, though, first with me and Larry and Lori Collins. These are from 2009, and, uh, you know, we pay tribute to the great late Larry Collins. Yeah, there are the Collins kids. Uh, Are you guys with me on the phone, Larry and Lori Collins? Uh, yes, I we are, Michael. Good, good <laughs> to be rockabilling up in New York City. Did you, Larry, did you ever get your hot rod? You know, yeah, for a time when I was in my teens, I had a pretty cool uh, uh, Pontiac that I hot-rodded up a little bit. and uh, uh, But I love them. At my age, I want another one soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, let's just say in the early 40s, right? Uh, yeah. 44 for me, yeah. And grew up... And I, I don't know if Lori will tell you hers or not. <laughs> Lori's a lady. She does not have to tell I us. I don't have to. <laughs> uh, us, us old rockabilly, hairy-legged boys do. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to be ashamed of. Were you guys born on a farm? Were your folks farmers? Uh, yeah, dairy farmers. That, that, that yeah, were, they were we dairy were. farmers. And did you spend your days doing chores before you became international rock stars? Yeah, yeah. Lori, you want to take that one well uh yeah we did you know of course everybody had to help out dairy farming is a very very demanding job you know the cows don't take a day off and (laughs) and, uh so yeah we all pitched in Uh, our older sister also sherry she uh was giving given the job of looking after us as well Hmm. so she had it the hardest so the story is, I believe that you uh, that Lori showed uh, singing talent at an incredibly young age and went to sing at a talent show nearby and, and was discovered by uh, Leon McAuliffe. Is that correct? That's, that's right. Yeah. She, uh, the whole family got well, Lori. You know, we used to sing in church uh, uh, as little bitty kids of about the grand old age of uh, oh, what were you then? Almost seven, Lori, probably uh-huh. something like that. And or seven, I would think. And uh, there was a, a, a show in Tulsa called at the Cimarron Ballroom called Leon Leon McAuliffe and the West. I think it was the Western 
play boys. And he was the big-time guy, and they took her down there, and she just, you know, Lori at that age could belt out a song. <laughs> so he said, you, you have two choices uh, to really, if you're interested in really pursuing this. You've got Nashville or Hollywood. And we had an aunt who lived out in uh, L.A., uh, so we went uh, west. That's amazing. Lori, you just at a very young age could just go and belt out a song, and uh, you, there was never any fear or self-consciousness? Uh, no, not really, and I think it was because of being around music, you know, our whole life. Our, my mother's side of the family was very musical, and uh, they were all very supportive, and, you know, I can't say I wasn't nervous, you know, especially... Uh, going to see Leon McAuliffe, you know, and uh, and singing for him. Did but they did they just marched you into the backstage and said, "Sing for this man," and you just stood there and acapella belted out a song? Is that right? Uh, well, that's true. Yeah. Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> that's the song that started it all. Yeah, I've heard the story that you guys used to play music separately in separate rooms until your parents said enough of this two different songs, you know, they could sit in the kitchen and hear it. They said, get in one room and sing together. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, it is uh, true. I, I've got a guitar for Christmas. And, uh, uh, you know, with me, I, it was just a natural thing. <laughs> you know, Mom showed me a couple of chords and, by the end of the end of the day, I was uh, singing, and uh, you know, I'm the original child for Ritalin. You know, I, <laughs> I, I was doing backflips and playing, uh, playing, playing my little twelve dollars Stella guitar. Mm. And we went out to our grandma's. We'd always go to our grandma, uh, ta- grandpa uh, Collins' uh, farm for Christmas. The whole family, and so that's where I made my debut. And of course, I did my whole deal. Hmm. And uh, everybody thought I was absolutely nutsoid. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I boogie woogie woogie. You know? <laughs> yeah, I guess this is the very early 50s, and uh, rock and roll was not on every TV channel and, and in commercials and things. It was still this kind of alien, no one was sure it was still going to be around. Uh, well, now that the word rock and roll hadn't been even coined then, even mm. the word rockabilly. So you, you guys, know, you guys went out to little, to live with your aunt in Los Angeles. Was that culture shock coming from uh, Oklahoma? Oh yeah, boy, was never, it ever! Never. I think for all of us, you know. But especially, I think it was for my my dad, you know, because my dad wasn't really uh, excited about moving selling his cows and taking the money and moving to California. It was not really what he wanted to do. But Nor, uh, nor was my, I. Yeah, my mom and I were kind of relentless. and <laughs> uh, So he finally agreed to do it. But, yeah, it, it was a huge, huge move for yeah. them. It seems like you pretty quickly got right, you got working right away. How did that happen? Was it luck, or did you know some people, or... Just the right place at the right time? We didn't uh, know anyone except <laughs> our aunt. <laughs> we just went to um, a lot of different talent shows on weekends, and, uh, you know, and, and that's kind of how it got started. And we went to one at a place called the Riverside Rancho, which is in um, the San Fernando Valley in California. And... Uh, 
uh, it was funny because we at, at that particular time we would enter separately, and uh, Larry won and I came in second. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, you know, uh, from my pretty, <laughs> from my from my debut at the, the Collins, uh, my grandma and grandpa's house, I. I wouldn't play for anybody for a while, you know, so I was hiding with my Stella guitar and and, uh, and doing my own deal. And then one day when they uh, wanted to go do this show, and it was actually the Chef Malani show, Lori, on the back of a, a flatbed pickup. And uh, I went to my mom and dad and said, look, I want to enter this amateur show. And they said, well, what do you do? <laughs> and I said, I've been practicing. And so they looked at each other and said, okay. So uh, they went, and uh, we went, and uh, uh, that's where I got fortunate. Fortunate, very fortunate, and beat my sister. <laughs> <laughs> well, together and you... So after that, after that, Dad said, why don't you guys work together? And, and then uh, we went to the Squeak of Dickens. He recommended Town Hall Party. And we went down there and auditioned on a Friday night. And they hired us, and uh, the next night, uh, Saturday night, we started the television show that we did for how many years, Lori? Lori? What? Can she hear? <laughs> Lori, how many uh, years I... were you guys, I think it was 56 to 59 you were on uh, Town Hall Party. There's a, a DVD, a couple DVDs of, of that, that stuff, and it's very easy to find on YouTube. And uh, it is amazing how much poise you guys had and professionalism, considering how quickly you were on TV. Uh, did it just come natural, or were you uh, sort of schooled or, or warned to, to act a certain way on there? No. Well, we, I don't no, think it was just we natural. were ever schooled. You know, and, and all the people in Town Hall Party were just, I mean, absolute pros, and working with people like that, uh, you know, it was all live, live television, live radio. And you went out there, you had one shot at it, and you did it. Yeah, and, for, uh, for folks who have never seen it, it's pretty amazing. Tex Ritter comes out, and he sort of very gently introduces all these people who come up and do a song. And sometimes it's a very simple setting. or you know, And the, the playing is amazing, and the level of professionalism is amazing. And, and also the variety of country music showcased within those little programs is amazing. And then, uh, yeah, the Collins Kids comes on, and Larry especially uh, it looks like, yeah, you drank a pot of coffee before you went. <laughs> uh, I you know, even now, to this day, I go out there, when Lori and I go out there, I mean, uh, something happens, and I, I can't be still. I still boogie and do my little uh, dance across the stage and pick that double neck guitar, and Lori and I just have fun. I mean, you know, it's it's a natural, it's always been a natural place for us to be. It's a gift. You yeah. know, it's just a gift. That's great. Uh, did folks take you under their wing? I mean, obviously, Joe Mafis took you, Larry, under the wing, but but as a community, were everyone like, these are, this is tomorrow's stars, let's, let's help them out a little bit? Go ahead, Lori. Um, I didn't really understand the question. I'm sorry. Sure, it's okay. Were, were you guys uh, taken under uh, some of the older, more experienced uh, stars' wings and, and tutored and taught and to told the ways of show business? No, not really. I mean, they all took us under their wing just as, you know, kids because, <laughs> you know, they. but as far as sitting down and telling us what to do, um, no one ever did. You know, I think they appreciated what we did at 
such an early age and, and uh, you know, being around them, I think, matured us more. And we watched, you know, we, we didn't know anything, and I think we just, you know, watched what they were doing as far as professionalism and just went out and did it, you mm. know. But Tex Ritter really became... Uh, someone that took us under his wing and they all kind of protected us you know yeah. and looked after us and it, know, it, it was a wonderful wonderful time in the 50s to be in the music business you, you guys got well, signed to Columbia. Interest, interesting thing about that is that uh, they treated us as their peers and uh, it was we were not we weren't treated as children you know uh, 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 you know, and, and cuddled, uh, coddled at all. Uh, you know, we had a job to do, and uh, and uh, we did it. At, Larry, at 12, 12, at 12 years old, did you feel any pressure? No, no, not at all. Well, you know, uh, when Joe Mathis would come up to you, or Merle Travis, I was fortunate to grow up with probably the finest uh, two of the finest guitar players that ever lived, Merle yeah. Travis and Joe Mathis, who is known as the king of the strings. And Merle Travis is known for, like, uh, one of the original finger-picking guys who, uh, like, uh, was actually Chet Atkins' uh, uh, hero, and, and that's how Chet learned the finger-picking style. Of course, it came from the old blues. But, but uh, playing with those guys... Uh, it was, you know, there was no big rehearsal. I mean, we'd go backstage and say, Larry, we're going to do a boogie knee. Uh, I'll take the first one. I will. I'll play a boogie and you take it and I'll take it. We'd <laughs> nod, at, nod at each other. And then we'd go out there. And, of course, Joe Mathis, you know, everything he did was on fire. Yeah. And, and at my age, I, I, I could keep up with it. But I, as far as learning, just watching those guys and... and and uh, you know, just when it when it pointed to me, I went. You know? <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> Turn him loose, let him go. There's a great there's a great clip of you and Joe Mathis and uh, 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 Merle Travis playing Wildwood Flower. It's just kind of a stint, and all three yeah. of you take a turn and you play each other's guitars, and it just looks like a riot, you know. Yeah, that's that's probably one of my favorite videos. All three of us are end up playing. My guitar, right, three, right. three guys playing, and it's like, whoa! <laughs> I mean, how cool would be for a kid that age? And to know? and to watch for the folks at home. You got signed to Columbia Records in 1955. Now, Columbia was not, you know, the rock and roll uh, home of rock and roll. Mitch Miller and a very old, old uh, American record company. Did did they understand what rock and roll was? Did how how were you treated there? And and how were? Well, tell me about the recording process. Well, um, it, you know, a, as far as what we did, um, you know, they, they loved, uh, they loved that and stood behind us. And in the beginning, we were kind of able to, you know, pretty much choose the, the material. And a lot of it were songs that we had written, you know, like Whistlebait and Mercy and Hot Rod, you know, um, which I thought was, you know, our, that was our signature kind of music. And uh, so in the beginning, it, it was great. And then we had to 
Mitch Miller kind of step in to the picture, and a lot of things changed. He was not a rock and roll fan, and um, he thought it was the eagle, and <laughs> can you believe that? I mean... <laughs> he was right. A little, little demon-possessed Collins kid. <laughs> yeah. And so, so he started uh, choosing a lot of our material, and, and it became more middle of the road, and I think, you know, it was something Larry and I didn't really want to do, but you know, we were young and kids and new at this, so you just kind of put yourself in their hands. Yeah. Well, the early records certainly have an amazing energy on them. Uh, how did that happen? Was it just what you guys, uh, and like you said, a lot of the songs you guys wrote, did you just come in there and run down a song and the band would work it up and that was just what it sounded like? Yeah, yeah usually you know. it was in one or two takes. I mean, we we knew our material because we wrote it, you know, yeah. so... If it was pretty easy, and of course we had great, great musicians too. Joe, you know, most uh, of the guys from Town Hall Party, all, all of our late on records, yeah, all the early records. stuff. Yeah. So those guys from Town Hall Party would just come down and, and lay down a couple songs real quick. So it was a real natural. Uh, yeah, all of it uh, was cut at a, a studio called uh, I think it was Radio Recorders down mm. in uh, uh, Hollywood, and uh, we just go on. Never will forget my first session. I wasn't tall enough for the mic for some reason, <laughs> so they, they they got a riser out for me, and I had my double neck guitar stepped on this riser's riser, and and I think I don't remember exactly what we were recording, but it was our first recording session. I those big RCA microphones. I kept saying, "Get close," and I got real close to the mic, and let me tell you, a lightning bolt. I got shocked. Oh. I got knocked knocked off the riser. And uh, it, 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 I fell it down there. It killed me. <laughs> but that was like maybe our first experience recording. Huh. But uh, uh, interesting, you know, through uh, Don Law was our pr- producer who signed us to Columbia. And, uh, you know, uh, doing Town Hall Party, like every entertainer from Johnny Cash to Bob Wills to all the great uh, Lefty Purcell, I could go on, Patsy Klein. All these people, when they came to L.A., would do town hall party or shows. So we got to know all these uh, uh, these great, great characters and great performers. And Don Law actually signed Johnny Cash from Sun at our dining room table hmm. because they'd all, all come to our house. And that's when he left Sun and uh, went with Columbia Records. And... We toured with Johnny a lot. Uh, that was a lot of our younger years. I mean, a jillion tours all the way up through Canada and and uh, uh, the U.S., you know. And Johnny was a hell of a guy and uh, treated us with great respect and never missed a show. Contrary to pop- popular belief, he was as screwed up as a lot of people think he was. <laughs> Huh. Uh, uh, speaking of screwed up, I mean, did you ever stop for a minute and go, "Boy, I wish I could just go to high school and uh, you know do the do the regular boring thing," or, or or were you always cool being having that different life? I did want to play baseball when I was about nine or something like that, so I made the team at the school, and they found out about it, and uh, uh, Tex Ritter came and had a talk with me <laughs> and said. And said, boy, do you realize uh, how many people are dependent on you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And uh, he laid it out pretty straight to me that, you know, that I can't mess up my fingers. That's pretty heavy. That's a pretty heavy thing uh, for a nine-year-old kid, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, look what I got to do. Yeah, Look who I got to uh, play guitar with. uh, uh, One of the things, too, Michael, that our dad did is, uh, you know, (laughs) if we stocked up on rehearsing, we used to rehearse every day at least, you know, two or three hours. Mm. But he, uh, when we would kind of slack, he would take the tube out of the TV so we could watch the TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good trick. Uh, in the yeah. <laughs> In the late 50s, Lori, you were the girlfriend on and off screen of Ricky Nelson and uh, Larry and you both appeared on the Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet on the on that TV show. Uh, Ricky was just giant at that time. I mean, that must have been I mean, there wasn't the paparazzi there was today, but as if, you know, you needed even more media attention uh, sort of the, you know, uh, what what kind of a guy just briefly, what kind of a guy was Ricky? I mean, he seems like the nicest guy in the world. Well, he was and uh, he was very uh, um, shy, I guess is the word, you know. And I think in the music business, uh, he was kind of unsure of himself, you know, he being around like Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins and some of the people that used to come over to our house. I think he was quite taken back with them, you know, because he was just starting his journey, you know. Mm. But... Uh, yeah, we we had a great relationship, and I think uh, initially it started just with both of us kind of being, you know, teenagers and having huge responsibilities as far as our, uh, you know, our shows, our respected shows, and so it was kind of fun to get together, and it's funny, though, when we did get together, we played music a lot, and, of course, Mary was always with us, and uh, when we would go out on dates, I wasn't allowed to go to the drive-in unless Larry got to go. (laughs) (laughs) So so we sent sent him to the snack bar a lot. I'll bet you did. Uh, but then you were you're 17 years old, and Lori, you, you uh, married Stu Carnell, who was Johnny Cash's manager, and quite a few years older than you. Were did had you guys been courting on the sly? Ah, uh, yeah, I guess that you could say that. <laughs> I guess you could say it, that. Yeah, of course, you it could was. Say that. Um, um, I always just say to myself, I must have lost my mind. But <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it. Uh, it was uh, a really, really uh, awful part of my life. Uh, hmm. As far as the way I did it, you know, I ended up with two beautiful daughters and was married to him for 20 years. Wow. And so, um, you know, I mean, it's just what it was, and I wish sometimes I could redo it, but it's but you can't. I guess it upset a a bunch of people and it sort of caused a rift between your family and yourself. Is that right? Yes, a big one. Yeah, a big one. Well, that's too bad. Uh, And Larry, you sort of went solo at that point, made some great rock and roll records, but eventually you guys did get back together and uh, and do some appearances, some TV stuff. You also sort of got into the Vegas uh, Reno, that whole uh, scene. What was your show like at that point? That would be sort of the mid-60s, right? 
Yeah, uh, and uh, also, you know, we're doing like television shows like Shindig. I don't know right. if you recall Shindig and that sort of stuff. Uh, it was uh, it was still jumping. Uh, we uh, basically we didn't do too much of our old stuff uh, uh, at that time because of the period. You know, that's when uh, we were doing mainly uh, hit songs of that uh, time. You know, and it was a little flower childish <laughs> and. Uh, Leather pants with fringe and uh, 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 you know not psychedelic, but uh, but you know no matter what Lori and I do, any kind of song we take and do, it's going to sound rockability or rockabilly because you know that's our soul. That's that's uh, that's what we do. Everything's real high energy and uh, and uh, you know get out there and flat get it. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those very early songs. Some of them you wrote together. A lot of them Larry wrote. Uh, were they written backstage or in your room? Or hey, Lori, I've got an idea for a song. And and how long would it take to put together a, a, a whole song? You know, back then you get a title, and I still write that way to this day. It usually starts with the title, and uh, like Hot Rod, you know. So we come up with a title, and and uh, basically I a riff. Uh, a rockabilly riff that sounded right for it, and from that, you know, it just it seems to kind of roll out. You hmm. know, it's uh, it's uh, not a painstaking process. Process. It's uh, just uh, uh, it, it happens. Music and uh, a, a title, then a riff, and the words come as you go. Hmm. Larry, you went on to write and produce lots of country music hits, including Delta Dawn, that was a hit a couple times for a couple different people. And uh, then, when did someone come knocking on your guys' door and say, "We want the Collins kids back"? When did that happen? Uh, Actually, uh, well, uh, from the uh, Reno, Tahoe, Vegas deal. At one point, Lori and I, uh, uh, you know, said when we weren't having fun with it anymore, we'd stop. It wasn't like a big explosion to stop at that period in our life, similar to the Everly Brothers, who are very good friends of ours, both of them. Uh, uh, we just weren't having fun with it, and I was going to go right and be a studio musician for a while. And uh, But they kept asking us to go to Europe, you know, uh, and... I mean, there was a year go by that they'd call and say, you've got to come to the show called Hensby in Europe. And I, Lori wanted to go, and uh, I just kept saying, no, 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 no. And then finally, after four or five years of that, I was playing golf at a uh, country club in uh, Reno called Hidden Valley. And I saw this guy standing over by a tree. He looked like a uh, uh, hell Bigfoot. And he was holding something in his arm, and I'm putting out on the 18th green. <laughs> and and this guy starts walking towards me, and I thought, what the heck's going on here? And it was Simi Mosley, the guy who hmm. made my first Mosrite guitar. My first, Joe and I were fortunate to have the first uh, Mosrite double-neck guitars ever made. And uh, he walked up on the green, and I said, Simi. And I started crying, of course. And he had this beautiful guitar, which I play now on stage. And he put it in my arms and said, go back to work. <laughs> and so uh, we did. And so what, we went, what, we, what we, year was we, that? 
Ah, Lori, when was that? 80, you know, I uh, think it was 19, I want to say 1995 hmm. or 96. And so did, did all the bad feelings just go away? Did it just seem like time to do this? Yeah, yeah I think yeah. so. And, yeah, the uh, honor of all the Europeans, you know, our record's doing so well over there. And, uh, and when we went, especially to have uh, uh, kids from 14 to uh, 60, and the audience all sang in hot rod, hot skip and jump, and, and our rockabilly songs and mercy, and knew all the lyrics and knew more about our lives than we did and how we recorded them. <laughs> I tell you what, it, it was very humbling. And yeah. So we've, we've been uh, uh, right along. Oh, well, it was magical, you know, to stand up there and sing and have them know every single word to your song and... You know, it it just uh, it it was like something that we had never ever experienced before, and it was it was wonderful. You know, it just was a wonderful thing to have know that they've you know they're keeping our music alive, and I think we all fell in love with each other, us and the audience. You know. Yeah, it is. A, it's an amazing thing. Uh, you guys have a gig coming up right here in town, uh, Friday, July 17th, uh, part of the Ponderosa Stomp at Lincoln Center. You're playing this amazing gig with uh, Carl Mann and Joe Clay, and it's all backed by Deke Dickerson and the Echophonics. I just saw Deke playing with uh, Carl Mann and Joe Clay at the Ponderosa Stomp in New Orleans, and... Uh, I, I really need to take a minute out to say there could be no better backing band for you guys. These guys seem to get it exactly right. <laughs> well, it's well, the we, real deal. We have an interesting story about Dee Dickerson. Well, let's hear it. Uh, uh, when uh, we decided to go to England to do the MC Festival, uh, we needed a band to work with us. And so they suggested uh, Dave Dickerson uh, or Deke Dickerson and Dave, they were then known as Dave and Deke. Right. And uh, so anyway, they uh, uh, drove up to Reno to rehearse with us. And uh, it was so funny. And when they came to the door, you know, they all had on their 50s garb, their white T-shirts and their jeans rolled up, <laughs> you know. And, and uh, so anyway, when we started rehearsing, it was just, it was amazing. They knew every single song that we have ever done. And if we didn't sing it exactly like the record, they would interrupt us and say, <laughs> well, no, you used to do it that way. They corrected you guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If I, and if I hit one lick that was a little hotter than it should have been, you know, like not the simplicity of rockabilly. They say, you didn't play that. <laughs> it's got to be right, man. Wow. <laughs> you know. So the direction of uh, keeping our music really raw. You know, Lori and I, are, let's face it, we're just raw, uh, raw rockabilly. Uh, you know, and, uh, and that's what, uh, when the folks come to Lincoln Center, that that's what they're going to see. They're going to see that... Uh, uh, we're a little, a little older, uh, maybe a lot older, but uh, we still do the raw Speak rock. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Same tempo, and uh, 
you know, we're coming to boogie. And you, <laughs> you, you, you've both definitely still got the energy of teenagers, which is an amazing thing. The, the gig is Friday, July 17th. It's outdoors at Damarush Park, uh, part of the Ponderosa Stomp at Lincoln Center. And folks can get tickets and information at ponderosastomp.com uh, slash Lincoln. It's you guys, the Collins Kids, Carl Mann, and Joe Clay, all backed by Deke Dickerson and the Echophonics. I think this is something even folks who think they don't like rockabilly would enjoy. It's just going to be a, a fun show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They got a little, and, little uh, rhythm in their they, bones. We'll the dancing, <laughs> you know, from the 50s was just incredible and an awful lot of fun. And uh, so we're really, we haven't worked in New York for quite a while. And they've asked us, and it just never worked out. But So we're very, very excited to come to New York. Mm. Uh, also, there'll be a DJ Toddophonic. Todd will be there. Have you have you guys ever heard of him? Yeah, we know Todd. We met him in New Orleans, and that was a great cat. He's great off. Cat. Yeah, he's off the wall. You've got to watch out for him. I'd just <laughs> just keep your distance from Todd. Uh, the whole thing also is going to be recorded and played uh, uh, on the thirtieth, right here on uh, WFMU. So. Uh, that's what we heard. Uh, that's really exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. So uh, the crowd can, you know, make some noise and, and uh, hear himself on the radio later. <laughs> so uh, how, how long are you guys going to keep doing this for? For, for eternity? Until we well, drop. <laughs> <laughs> I guess as long as we can hobble up on the stage. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, we really don't talk about that, you know. It's basically we just uh, take each show we do, and, you know, we don't do a lot of shows. We probably do, what, Larry, maybe five or six shows a year. Yeah, something like that. And where do you guys live? Uh, I live Santa in Bar- Reno, Nevada. Oh. Yeah, I'm I'm down in Santa Barbara, California. Well, so it's, it's an, it sounds like a, a great life. Uh Larry and Lori Collins, uh, thanks so much for joining us. This has been amazing. I've got the song Let's Have a Party queued up here to, to get us out of here. Is there anything we need to know about this song or about... Uh, how did you first hear this song? You know, I'm not sure how we first uh, heard it, but uh, I think we, we were the first to record it. Uh, Wanda Jackson, uh, we were honored when she came out. We just did a show in Oklahoma with her not too long ago, and she's a good friend. She came out and said she'd learned it from uh, our record, mm, and then and then uh, Presley, I think, came out later with it. And, uh, but uh, I'm not sure how that song uh, came to us, but uh, that is a great a, song. Yeah, it's a great a... song. So, uh, and look, we'd like to say also to the New York folks, uh, uh, come come get down and do some rockabilly boogie with us. <laughs> All right. Uh, we will see you Friday, July 17th, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give that information again at the end of the show for anybody who missed it. Larry and Lori Collins, thank you guys so much. It's really a very, very interesting story, and the music will always just be fantastic. Oh, thank, uh, thank you, Michael. Michael. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Happy Fourth of uh, July, guys. Some people like to rock. Some people like to roll. But moving and a groove is going to satisfy the soul. Let's have a party. But I can shake a chicken in the middle of the room Let's have a party Ooh, let's have a party Send me to the store, let's buy some more Let's have a party tonight 
Yeah, there's Mr. William Bell, and you don't miss your water. William Bell, welcome to the program. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing great. That, that song sounds great. Uh, you hold the distinction of being one of the longest-running artists on Stax. You were there just about at the beginning and just about at the end and, and got to see the whole thing go down. Yes, uh, I've been, uh, I guess, blessed to still be around, and I've seen it all. Yeah. You have 13 songs on the Billboard charts. Uh, born, I believe, right in Memphis, Tennessee, right? Yes. Uh, so you couldn't be any more Memphisy. Uh, as Stax really is the definition of that Memphis soul sound. You were born, uh, I think, 1939, is that right? That is correct. And growing up, what kind of music was in your house? How did you, you get to, to, where you, to your sound? Well, it was just like a melting pot. We heard uh, uh, country and western, which is, they were calling it rockabilly back then, of course. <laughs> And we heard blues, of course, and jazz, and, and of, of course, gospel. And were your folks, uh, was there music in the house? Did they play instruments? Uh, well, uh, not my, my mom or dad. They didn't play any instruments, but my mom did uh, sing in church, yes. So I guess you were just a young teenager during uh, the Second World War, and, and that time, what was Memphis like back then? I, I can't, it's hard to imagine. Oh, yes. I, I grew up uh, during the the heyday, I guess you say, of all of the uh, guys coming up, like B.B. and Bobby Bland and Junior Park and all those guys. So uh, I was a teenager and sneaking down on Beale Street and hanging out, and finally I got a job in a club called the Flamingo Room down there. Well, did you sing in the in the church choir? Yes, I did. I, I Every Sunday... <laughs> <laughs> and when the rehearsals, yeah, I was uh, singing in the church choir at a very early age. And was there any inkling that you might want to do music for a profession, or, or was that not even in your mind as a little kid, as a teenager? Well, back then uh, I didn't think of uh, doing it as a profession uh, because I, I had plans on becoming a doctor. My mom wanted me to become the first doctor in the family and all of that. So, uh, But uh, after about 14 years old, the uh, actual music bug bit me, and uh, <laughs> I was hooked after that. No looking back. You're in a band called the Del Rios. I think that's your first band that sort of made a mark. Is that right? That That's right. Uh, we... Uh, uh, won a uh, talent contest, and uh, then we got a job at the Flamingo Room. And uh, so that's that would be like, you know, mid-1950s, 56, 57, somewhere around there. What was the Memphis scene like? I mean, I, I've always read that there were just lots and lots of clubs, and every band was better than the next one. Yes, we had uh, clubs all over the place, and of course, down on Beale, that was during part of the heyday of Beale Street. And and uh, our club was right off of Beal on Hernando, and uh, but right up the street there you had Club Handy where BB and Bobby and uh, all of those guys played. So uh, the experience of just growing up around so much talent and so much music, it was just tremendous. Yeah, what did it mean to have a gig at the Flamingo? Was that a five nights or six nights a week, or was it six hours a night? What what, what kind of a commitment was that? Well, I was still in high school, so I I could only work on the weekend. Hmm. And uh, my mom agreed that uh, as long as uh, Phineas Newborn had me back home to go to uh, church on Sunday morning, 
Uh, I could work uh, Friday nights out, you know, after school. I'd work Friday night and Saturday. And how long were those sets? Oh, uh, we did uh, a uh, fifteen-minute set. The band would play thirty minutes, and then uh, I would come on and sing uh, like four fifteen minutes, and then we'd have to go to the back. We couldn't sit out front because we were too young to be out front but we'd go in the back and sit in the dressing room hmm. and what was there just pocket money how much money could a, a high school kid make doing that <laughs> well to us it was big money but uh, the, the, the experience of it it was like going to university the experience hmm. of just being around musicians like uh the, the david uh, fathead newman and charles lloyd and and Gene Bolex Miller and and all those people and all of the Phineas Newborn Jr. Yeah, Willie Mitchell, Ben Branch, all these guys had bands out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and just that that experience to a young kid that was priceless. So uh, we didn't make a lot of money, and sometimes we didn't make any, but just the experience of knowing, learning our craft, and knowing how to entertain and 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 be surrounded by. Earl, uh, older musicians that were supportive of what we were trying to do. Hmm. Uh, so it's sort of great timing for you because Stax started, I think, around 1961. How did uh, they find you? How did you get there? Well, uh, through Chips Moman, uh, who, who was a, a musician and producer, and uh, the first one of the first engineers at Stax. Yeah, people forget that Chips, who later made hits with Elvis and all kinds of people, was early uh, a big part of Stax. Right, absolutely. And um, my most of the guys in my uh, uh, group, the Del Rios, were older than I, so they were a couple of them were drafted, and I went to do a solo thing. And Chips was always asking me why I didn't cut a record, and so finally he agreed to do four sides. And did, did Chips just know you from seeing you live? Yes, yes, he, he knew me from seeing me live at the, uh, at the Flamingo. Hmm. So, uh, and he just brought you in and it was that easy, and then you kind of st- stayed. Well, <laughs> uh, actually, uh, he asked me about a year prior and then I went on tour during the summertime with Phineas Newborn's Orchestra, and I was in New York uh, for a while and uh, working out in Long Island. And um, I, that's when I wrote You Don't Miss Your Water, so I got homesick. And when I came back, Chips uh, approached me again about it, and so, of course, I had four songs written, and I did the four songs. So uh, let's talk about that process for a minute. Do, when you would come in with a song, would you just play it on the piano and sing it to them, or would you have made a demo already? No, no, no. <laughs> we would just play it uh, live. We would audition live and play it on a piano or a guitar and, and sing it. And, uh, of course, uh, Chips fell in love with You Don't Miss Your Water, and uh, we went in and uh, did a demo of it. And, of course, uh, it was kind of a a funny thing, because Jim Stewart thought it was too gospel (laughs) at first, and he didn't like it, but Mrs. Axton loved it, so... uh, Finally, it came out as a as a single. That's interesting. It went to ninety five on the Billboard chart, and it's become you know it must be. Is it the most covered of the songs that you've written? Uh, not not really, uh, but it it's responsible and it's known as being the first real southern soul type uh, uh, soul type uh, ballad. Yeah, and uh, but uh, I guess uh, either "Born Under a Bad Sign" or 
Uh, I Forgot to Be a Lover has been the most uh, recorded uh, and covered song by different acts and artists. Interesting. So how long how long was the process from when you sort of play a song for Chip's Moment till, till the record is finished? How long, what happened in between those two things? Well, I think he was just... Uh, kind of happy that he, I finally agreed to do four songs and, and uh, it didn't take that long. I think it took us a couple of months to just get everything recorded and, 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 and finished because back then, you know, we recorded the band and the singer all at the same time. Mm. So uh, it took us roughly about a month to really get it ready to uh, release it. And, but it took uh, another three or four months before it came out. We got it ready in the latter part of, I think, uh, uh, 61, and then it didn't really become popular until uh, January or February of 62. But the actual recording and working up the arrangement, that's all real quite fast? Yeah, that that uh, that went quite fast, uh, because we had more or less, uh, uh, it was just a uh, you know, gospel type of piano with Marvell Thomas Rufus's son, playing piano on it, so uh, it was just uh, a four-piece thing, and then we put the horns and, 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 uh, and uh, organ on it yeah. later. So uh, Stax in the early 60s was slowly sort of churning up, and you get drafted, I think, 1963, is that right? Yes, that, that is correct. And where do they send you? Where did you go? What did you do? Well, uh, at first I went to Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic training and then advanced training, so I stayed down there two stints, and then I was shipped to uh, Hawaii, and uh, I spent uh, quite a f- bit of time in Hawaii. And then uh, that's not bad. And then uh, we never uh, went into actual battle, but we I was deployed to uh, uh, you know uh, over in Nam for a little while for the the unit that I was in. Wow! So you got back just in the nick of time. It sounds like yes, uh, I was. Uh, pretty short on uh, what they call a short time, so I was pretty short with my time, so uh, I was over only for uh, like a couple of months and then back uh, to Hawaii because I was getting out of the military in in about uh, three months. Hmm. You come back and uh, uh, you write Born Under a Bad Sign, you you talked about, that really became signature song for Albert King and it was uh, covered by Cream and, and all kinds of people to become a blues standard. That's, I think, around 1967. I want to ask you, how much hanging around was there at Stax? Uh, oh, <laughs> quite a bit on my, on my part, because uh, I was always interested in the, the behind-the-scenes aspect as well as performing, but I wanted to know uh, why, you know, how did you record, uh, how you mic a drum, or all of those technical things. I was always interested in that. And uh, so I hung around Stacks and like I said, uh, got a lot of a lot of just great, great uh, on the job training. Yeah. Well, that's that's a song born under bad sign you wrote with Booker T. Jones. A lot of your stuff is collaborations with him. What did what kind of did that was that let's go over to somebody's house and write a song or was it just, hey, I've got an idea or or was it just casual or or did you sit down to write songs? Well, it was just uh, like a pairing of uh, good lyricists and, and everything uh, with a musician. And uh, because Jim always, uh, and rightly so, he wanted to have good lyrical content and also good melodic structure. 
So uh, he would pair off a lyricist with a, uh, just a tried-and-true musician. So Booker and I knew each other, and he was a church organist at the church that uh, I attended. And so uh, hmm. it was just a, a good pairing for the two of us. You guys went way back. Yeah, I used to. I heard. I read that uh, in the early days of Stax, Booker T used to do his paper route and then come and play on sessions. I mean, oh yeah, he was yeah. so young, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing I noticed is that a lot of the early, early Stax stuff, there's no producer credited at all. Well, that's true because uh, you know this was the beginning of 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 creating. Uh, an industry that uh, we knew nothing about as far as uh, uh, from a, uh, a legal standpoint. So we didn't know about that uh, you could make money off of production or <laughs> or something like that. All we knew is that uh, we were good musicians or good singers or something, and we enjoyed making music. So it took a couple of years for us to catch on to that oh you can make money in, in <laughs> publishing and you can make money in, yes <laughs> yeah jim stewart really made some colossally bad uh, business decisions while making some amazing music you know it's a it's an absolutely i mean we were all uh, more or less uh, flying by the seat of our pants uh, uh jim was a, a country a, a banker and a country fiddle player hmm. and so he just kind of backed into this Stacks thing, you know, he loved music, but he he didn't have any idea of all the behind-the-scenes thing, uh, things that, uh, uh, from a business standpoint, so we all were playing catch-up. Mm. Yeah, 1967, Every Day Will Be Like a Holiday, another song that's been covered a lot. 1968, Otis Redding passes away, and you uh, wrote that song, uh, Tribute to a King. I believe you sing on Otis's version of Respect, maybe a couple other Otis uh, se sessions, is that right? Right, I did the harmony with him on uh, Respect, uh, because I, luckily, I guess as, as fate would have it, I was in the studio uh on on a furlough and doing some recording when uh, Johnny Jenkins and Otis came in, huh. and um, they needed uh, well they didn't have enough uh, material for Johnny, so they asked if anybody had song a song, and so Otis of course had these arms of mine, right. <laughs> and uh, Otis and I just kind of hit it off from from day one and became very good friends and of course I went back off to the military and then when I came back he was a big superstar so. <laughs> <laughs> but we did travel and tour quite a bit after I got back people yeah. people often talk about just the electricity he brought to a session and the magnetism and just the way he could inspire the whole band and get the horn arrangements going in his head I mean what was that like oh he would never write down a complete song he always had the first line of every verse and and he never sang anything the same way. It was all <laughs> almost like uh, he knew what the first line of the verse was, and everything else was just uh, spontaneous uh, create, creations, you know. And, hmm. and that's what made it so great, because he was living what he was singing during that time, and you could just feel it. Hmm. Well, is there a secret to the Stax sound, to the success of all those records? I mean, musically, is there some, something that happened? I don't know. I think uh, the, the secret, if there is a secret, it was just a pairing of different uh, musical uh, elements. I mean, Steve and Duck coming from the rockabilly, uh, 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 you know, kind of sound, and then you have uh, Al and Booker coming from that church blues, 
jazz thing, and I think the combination hmm. of that sound and everything, it just created a whole different sound. And the building that, which was an old theater building, um, that uh, we were recording in, it was almost like doing it live yeah. <laughs> with the acoustics and everything. Yeah, 1968 with Judy Clay, you recorded uh, Private Number, and that was a hit. And uh, again, another song that's been covered uh, a, a lot of times. And I, we heard it, there's a bunch of uh, Jamaican reggae, mostly ska versions of that song uh, that we heard one of earlier. Uh, you also had time to write songs for Carla Thomas and Ollie and the Nightingales, the Astors, uh, Albert King. You wrote some with Steve Cropper. Uh, it, it seems like you're a busy guy back then. Uh, what was, I mean, obviously the hanging out thing was important. W- was there a policy that folks could just walk in the door of Stax and, tr- and, and be heard? Well, uh at at the beginning, that was that policy for a couple of years. Of course, it had to tighten. But uh, you know, we were hanging out, but we would we were working at the same time and learning. So when we would hang out, of course, uh, there was always if you had the ability to play or write. And they were saying that well, Sam and Dave is coming in, or Otis is coming in for a session, or Rufus Thomas. And do you have anything that you can present? And so, of course. Uh, a lot of writing was done, and they would pair off different people to get different sounds and different feels. So um, it was just a creative, uh, that creative energy was high during that time. Yeah, it's an amazing story, and I, you know, I recommend people get uh, books or you know information about Stax because it really is an amazing story. It sort of started to go downhill in the late '60s. I, you know, I. It's hard to know exactly. It, it seems like the definitive reason why it all happened has never quite been told. There was some funny business with money and banking oh. and loans. And there, and it seems also like the racial tensions that were happening in Memphis at that time sort of got the pressure cooking a little bit. I think it was a combination of a lot of things uh, that... that uh of course, we went from being a small mom and pop company to big, big uh, corporate conglomerate. That was one of the things that was wrong, which uh, a lot of people that came on board didn't really, they were there for the monies and not had the uh, best interest of the artist or uh, the behind the scenes uh, people. So uh, that was one of the things, uh, bad business deals, uh and of course, uh, after the death of Otis and uh, and Dr. King, it just changed the atmosphere quite a bit. And uh, we had some success after that. As a matter of fact, when Stax uh, uh, filed bankruptcy, we had uh, records on the charts. But uh, we had some business dealings, and and uh, and there was some, uh, I guess you would say, political reasons. So there were a whole. Uh, group of things that were happening during that time that uh, contributed. Yeah. Uh, you, did you manage to hold on to your publishing, and are you sort of taken care of pretty well from, you know, now, here we are so many years later, do you still uh, do all right from just writing these great songs? Oh, yeah. Um, of course, uh, the first, like I said, the first five years of my contract with Stax, uh uh, Jim and and and, and e. Smith has had the publishing on on, on all of that, but uh, then uh, of course uh, after a couple of years you realize that oh you can make money with publishing too and you can yeah. make money and so I made money more or less 
from uh, not only my writing, but I got uh, when I re-signed, I got part of my publishing and 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 got some production uh, things going. So you you when you when you talk about giving you, you know your first five years, you sort of signed away your publishing. Do you still have the writer share of that? In oh that yeah, case? I still have the writers. Uh, Jim was a, a good man. Uh, he, that's why I said. Uh, he did not take the writers or anything like that, but uh, the publishing end of it uh, was done, handled through East Memphis, and uh, and during that time uh, we were only more or less interested in getting our music out there, being an, a good artist, and and writing songs. So we didn't look at the behind the scenes aspect until a uh, few years later. So uh, but uh, Jim always gave us the writers credits and everything and and so we uh, when somebody would do a song or something uh in their from the early days of like with uh, born under bad sign and all that stuff I didn't have the publishing but the writer is writers are still intact. Yeah, that's great. Uh you you had some hits in the 70s. Uh you've been sampled many, many times. Your records, lots of your records have been sampled by all different uh folks. Is that something you you get a little piece of? Oh yeah, as, as a matter of fact, uh from the since the last couple of years of stacks uh uh, I, I had part of publishing and 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 uh, my writers of course is intact. And uh, from all the samples and everything, and then when I started uh, my own label and everything, of course, uh, the masters are mine. So, uh, uh, yes, that, that's uh, who we put all those mechanisms in place. Who knew that sampling would become, you know, who would have ever dreamed of that? Uh, folks can check out WilliamBell.com or also PonderosaStomp.com slash Lincoln and hear about your big gig, which is coming up Thursday the 16th. Uh, 6.30 p.m. in New York City. It's you, Harvey Scales, and uh, the Bob Betts, of course, and uh, our own uh, alumni, uh, Meredith Oaks, will be DJing there, and the whole thing will be broadcast live right here on WFMU during uh, Dave the Spaz's program. Tell me, I've seen you live before, and uh, it's a lot of fun. There's slow songs. There's up up songs. Uh, it's great. You're, you're, you're clearly one of these guys very comfortable on stage with a lot of experience. Is it something you still look forward to? Oh, yes. Um, I, I am looking forward to this. Uh, um, the Big Apple has always been uh, very good to me. <laughs> the people are wonderful, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm, I am very comfortable. I'm more comfortable on stage than I am uh, backstage, I think. Mm. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of funny because I, I, you know, I more or less grew up performing on stage with, uh, you know, like I said, from the Memphis days. That's very interesting. Uh, this is going to be a fantastic show. Ch- folks can get tickets at ponderosastomp.com slash Lincoln, and they can check out williambell.com uh, for information about what you're up to just generally. Now, I've got the song Private Number queued up here. What what else do we need to know about this fantastic song? It's such a great song. The strings and everything. Uh, is it one of those things when you heard it coming out uh, of the speakers when the final mix was done, did you feel satisfied? Did you say, hey, this is really a piece of work here? Well, you know, we originally did that for... Uh Judy Clay, and uh, we never uh, got together in the studio together to record it because I, I wrote it for her because Jim had asked again. It was one of those situations. She finished her recording session, and I'm in the studio. Jim said, do you have anything that uh, Jackie can record? And I had this half song, so Booker and I went over to uh, 
his house in the den and and sat up all night <laughs> wrote it came back the next day but jackie had uh, for another previous engagement actually in new york so she had to leave so i had to put the song down for her, and we sent the uh, tapes to new york and of course um uh the powers that be up there uh, got the idea that this would make a great duet and they let me do the first verse and and sing the chorus and then put jackie's singing the chorus with me and recorded her during the second verse. So uh, we never actually in the studio did it, which was kind of strange. That's amazing, because it does sound uh, really natural. Yeah, I know. And we did uh, perform it live on stage, though, a few times, yes. All right. Well, let's hear this uh, fantastic song. We will see you Thursday the 16th uh, up at Lincoln Center for the uh, for the get-down with Harvey Scales, the Bobettes, and, of course, the great William Bell. Thanks so much for visiting with us and giving us a little insight this morning. Oh, thanks for the invite, and I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thanks so much. All righty. Things are wrong. 